Welcome to Medicare for All Explained. This podcast will enlighten our listeners and dispel the distortions that surround Medicare for All. Medicare for All Explained is produced in collaboration with Physicians for a National Health Program and is hosted and produced by Joe Sparks. I'm your host, Joe Sparks. This is Episode 60, Highlights, Volume 1. In this episode, I take clips that highlight important points about Medicare for All. I would like to start with a clip from Episode 1, Medicare for All, in Overview. In this clip, Dr. Ed Weisbart explains what Medicare for All is. Dr. Weisbart is a go-to person if you have questions about Medicare for All. And while that is helpful, it's not even his greatest power. Dr. Weisbart is great at giving clear, easy-to-understand explanations about Medicare for All. I love his clear and simple explanation about what Medicare for All is. So Medicare for All is a very simple concept and a very simple solution. It simply means taking Medicare, which has been around for 50-some years now and has been remarkably successful and remarkably popular, take Medicare, make a few improvements that we all recognize it needs to have done, um, and then provide that to every American. The improvements are pretty simple. You would simply need to expand the benefits because most Americans actually agree that people on Medicare should have eyeglasses covered, should have hearing aids covered if they need them, should have dentistry covered if they need that. So improve the benefits. And the other thing you have to do in improving Medicare, the other big thing is to eliminate these you know, significant co-pays and deductibles. No American should have to deal with co-pays and deductibles to go see a physician. That's just a barrier to health care. So if you did those two things, if you improved the benefits and if you eliminated the co-pays and deductibles, well, then there wouldn't be any need for people to go shopping around for a supplement or a Medigap policy or certainly not to go into a Medicare Advantage plan. There would be no, no reason to do that because we would be providing every American with really robust, comprehensive, easy-to-use health insurance. Now to another topic, the public option. It is almost a sure bet that some opponent of Medicare for All will say that we can implement a public option for people who can't afford health insurance. The public option is a bad idea. And Dr. Weisbart gives another clear and simple explanation as to why. No, in a word. I mean, there, are, there is some appeal to that because it might be easier politically to get to a public option than it would be to do the full program that we need. So there's, there's that argument. Part of the reason it might be easier to accomplish is because the insurance companies would see it for what it is. The insurance companies would recognize that only the sickest of Americans would go into that. So the insurance companies would lose their most expensive patients, probably, and they would keep the healthiest, most profitable patients. So it might be that insurance companies wouldn't fight that as hard, so it might be more politically achievable, but it wouldn't accomplish very much. Very few of the massive uninsured people we have today would go into it. Most would not, because there would be a premium, which since the program would have the most expensive patients, it would be a high premium. So very few people would really pick it. So it wouldn't accomplish the goal of getting everybody insurance. It wouldn't accomplish the goal of saving money for the country because it would just be one more choice of many options we have today. That's a really important point because if you just add one more insurance option, 
That means that hospitals and physicians and the entire system has to keep all of the infrastructure that is required today to manage all of these insurance companies. The average doctor spends nearly $100,000 a year in the United States just dealing with the insurance companies. And that's not true anywhere else in the world. Hospitals employ 900,000 people working in billing and insurance-related activities across the United States, 900,000. And we have 900,000 hospital beds in the United States. So the average hospital has one person from billing for every bed that they have. And that's unheard of anywhere else in the world. In Canada, for example, Toronto General, I believe, has three people in billing. This is unheard of. And as a result of that, you wouldn't get any of that. None of that would improve by just adding a Medicare option. A Medicare option would be just one more choice. All of the infrastructure, all of the wasteful infrastructure that we squander our resources with would be unchanged because they would still need all of that. And we wouldn't accomplish very much. We wouldn't save money, and we wouldn't reduce the number of uninsured by very much. So it's a decoy issue. It's a fight that would probably be, despite what I said earlier, probably still be a pretty heavy lift, probably still be a pretty hard fight. And and it would delay any ability to move forward on real Medicare for all. You know how it works in our country. We would do this, we would fight for it, and then we would spend a few years trying to implement it. And then we would spend a few years trying to assess whether it worked or not. And so it would delay what we need to do, which means it would leave tens of millions of Americans remaining without insurance, even more remaining with crummy insurance. And if we're going to have a fight to fix the problems with healthcare, that's not the fight we should have. We should have the fight for Medicare for all, for real Medicare for everybody. I want to go back to a point you made about the public option. And one of the issues that I see with it is I see it's the worst of both possible worlds. Because what happens, the insurance companies will just take the healthier people to make profits and they'll leave the more sick, they will leave the sicker people for the insurance companies. So what will happen is they will get the profits and the public will be left with taking care of the sicker people. Since we're not getting the taxes for that, that will make it very unaffordable. Is that point correct? You're exactly right. The sickest of Americans are the ones who are the most worried and the most struggle the most with the restrictions that the insurance companies put in place. If you're healthy, you look at your you pick your insurance company to make sure that it covers the one or two doctors that you need to see or the one hospital that you want to go to or the three drugs that you might take or whatever. You pick your insurance company based on the needs of a relatively healthy person and then you're happy with that as long as you don't get sick. But if you get really sick, if you have something bad happen, if you have cancer or you need rehab after a stroke or something of that sort, all of a sudden the restrictions that your insurance company has that you didn't even know were there come into play. And so that's what we've seen around the country over and over again is that when people go into these restricted plans, they're actually reasonably happy until they get sick. And when they find when they get sick, that's when their insurance almost disappears from them. And so You're exactly right. It's the sickest of Americans who would decide that they need to go into what would unfortunately be a relatively expensive program because it would have the sickest of Americans. So they would be the ones who would want to go into it. And there would be a death spiral for the cost of such a program. One topic that I think doesn't get discussed enough is just how harmful our current healthcare system is to the economy, both for individuals and the nation. If you need to know about the economics of healthcare, economics professor Gerald Friedman is one of the top experts on the subject. In episode 8, 
I ask if our current health care system is affordable. Here's what Professor Friedman said. <laughs> yeah, well, that's really a very important bottom line question that gets missed in all the discussion of how expensive single payer would be. And the answer is no. The current system costs three and a half trillion dollars or close to 20% of our national income. So about 20 cents out of every dollar of output produced goes for the current healthcare system. That's going to rise over the next decade. These are the projections from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. They're not my numbers. They're the official government numbers. They expect spending under the current system will rise $6 trillion in 2028, at which point we won't be spending 20 cents out of every dollar we'll be spending closer to 30 cents out of every dollar on health care, and it will just keep on going up. I mean, this is what's been going on in the United States for the last 45 years. Health care has been increasing at a faster pace than the economy as a whole. Some of that is because the population has gotten bigger. You know, it keeps getting bigger, so we've been more on health care. Some of it is that we're aging, and an older population uses more health care. A little bit is that we're using more health care per person, but very little of the increase is because of greater utilization. The rest, over half of the increase in spending, is because of inflation. Normal inflation plus this extra bit of medical price inflation, where prices for health care have been rising faster than prices for everything else. And that is what distinguishes the United States from the rest of the world. And all we can see going forward is more of the same. In Canada, medical prices have been increasing at the same rate as everything else. So they've gone from 7% of gross domestic product being spent on health care to 10% today. In the United States, medical prices have been rising 1% to 1.5% a year faster than everything else. And that has driven healthcare from 7% of gross domestic product to about 18% today and just heading on up from there. So the current system is not affordable because we have allowed healthcare prices to rise at a faster rate than everything else. It's not that we're using more healthcare. We actually use less healthcare than do people in other affluent countries. It's because we let the price of healthcare go up faster than everything else. I mean, you look at drugs. When I first started doing Medicare for All work 15 years ago, drug prices in the United States were 50%, 60% higher than in other countries. Now, drug prices are twice as high as in other countries. And that's according to the Trump administration, where the Secretary of Health and Human Services is a former executive at a drug company. So these are their numbers. And for some drugs, like insulin, prices in the United States for insulin, for Humalog, are almost seven times as much as in Canada. The same drug made by Eli Lilly costs seven times as much in the United States, in Maine or Vermont, as it does in Quebec or Ontario. And that's what's driving rising health care costs, and that's what's making health care unaffordable in the United States. Families are cutting back on everything else. People are buying less restaurant meals. They have shorter vacations. People are economizing on everything else so that they can afford the rising cost of health care. And, you know, you can do that for a while. 
but eventually you just start running out of other things to economize on. Of course, the other way we economize on healthcare is that we just shut some people out. The Affordable Care Act has helped on that because it has brought more people into health insurance. More people have health insurance than 10 years ago. But more of those people are what we call underinsured. According to the Commonwealth Fund, close to half the adult population is uninsured or underinsured. About 10% don't have insurance. Another 10% of adults have a gap in their insurance coverage during the year. 25% have insurance policies that are so meager, deductibles that are so high, that in effect, if these people have a medical problem, their insurance isn't going to help. It's not good enough to keep them out of medical bankruptcy or allow them access to the health care system. And if you look at counties across the United States, areas with more underinsured people have higher mortality. As much as 10% of mortality in the United States now can be associated with underinsurance, people who don't have insurance or people whose insurance isn't good enough so that they can afford to go to the doctor. 200,000 excess deaths in the United States because of this lack of good, decent health insurance, good enough that they can go to the doctor or the drugs that they've been prescribed. About 20% of Americans report that they did not fill a prescription in the last year because they couldn't afford it. So what you get is it's getting more expensive than we can afford financially, but it's also getting more expensive than we can afford in terms of people's lives. People are dying because they don't have health insurance. And that's something else that needs to be counted here. When we talk about the $3.5 trillion that we spend on health care, we really should add to that the cost of the excess death because of limited access to health care. If you have 200,000 people dying because of a lack of access to decent health care, then that is billions and billions of dollars of productivity, of pain and suffering, all those things that are associated with people not having access to health care, real economic or social costs. So we can't afford the current system financially, and we can't afford the current system because it's killing too many Americans. And that is just going to get worse and worse because the only way we have in the current system, the only way we have to economize is we don't have an effective way of restricting the excess pricing of drugs. We don't have an effective way of restricting the excess pricing at hospitals. We don't have an effective way of getting the inefficiency of the health insurance system out of our economy. We don't have any way of controlling this rising cost of health care except by keeping people out of access, preventing people from going to the doctor. That's what we've been doing with rising deductibles, rising copays for the last 20 years. That's been our policy. Started with the HMOs, and now it's gone to high deductible health plans. And that's the only way we have of controlling costs. And that way doesn't really control costs because it kills people. It just transfers it from some financial cost to another part of the ledger. But either way, the rising cost of health care is not affordable for our economy and our society. We're all paying in all these different ways. And the more you look at it, the more different ways you see that we're paying for this overpriced, inefficient healthcare system that's threatening to bankrupt the whole country. When I first heard Professor Friedman's answer, 
my reaction was, crap, the situation is much worse than I thought, and it hasn't gotten better since I interviewed Professor Friedman in March 2019. Every physician that I have talked to has stories about insurance companies denying care and are refusing to pay for treatments. And often it's hard to know if the insurance clerks are giving you accurate information. Dr. Nikte Mejia has plenty of those stories. However, when I interviewed her in Episode 3, The Manual, it was her personal story about feeding her second child in the battles with her insurance company that struck me. I think that one other comment I would make is that people sometimes forget that clinicians are also patients and that clinicians also get sick and have to deal with the insurance companies themselves for them or their family members. And I just have to say, I have been there as a human being that is not, you know, caring for patients. I knew there were problems, but this really took it home for me. Uh, when I had my second child, who's now four years old, I breastfed them initially, but then had troubles giving them what they needed to sustain the appropriate nutrition. So my pediatrician said he needs to take some formula and gave me a prescription for formula. Um, so I gave her formula, and within a day or two, she had blood in her stool, lots of blood. I was terrified. I showed up to the pediatrician in panic saying, what are we going to do? You know, I can't make enough milk. This new thing is giving her a big problem. And she said, you know, we need to try a different formula. The one she's taking, she may have troubles digesting it. So gave me a prescription to go buy something at the pharmacy. Immediately from the, you know, pediatrician's office, I go to, to the pharmacy and they say, well, first problem, you need a prior authorization. Second problem, we don't believe your insurance covers this. Um, we need $700 for the next few weeks of, of formula. And, you know, so began a process of my daughter's pediatrician and I appealing and talking with a lot of people in the insurance company to try to get that formula approved for my daughter, which eventually it was. But it wasn't after a lot of phone calls from both the pediatrician's office and I, as someone who knew the system, and letters from the pediatrician and I, and eventually one letter that thinks that one of the people who answer the phones without the clinical training, they said, I see you've been calling a lot. Let me send you um, the manual to the policy that we have in place. And thanks to that person sending me the manual, I realized that they were supposed to be covering this uh, formula all along. So my last letter to them said, page so-and-so of your manual, it states that formula is covered. And, you know, quickly I ended up with a year's supply of, of the formula that I was initially going to pay for thousands of dollars. I just wanted to share that to make a point that we all face this. It's not just a doctor or patient issue. It's, it's a people issue. I think as human beings, we have the right to health and health care. And, you know, we live in an amazing country that a few decades ago was creative enough to create Medicare and uh, support people who had worked through their lives to make this country what it is, right? So we have Medicare, and I'm thankful for Medicare. And I wish there were others who could benefit from a better, improved Medicare, regardless of age, 
regardless of the color of the skin, regardless of where in the country they live. Dr. Victoria Dooley will always speak passionately about Medicare for All. And in episode 23, she addresses another problem with our healthcare system that is underrated and doesn't get discussed enough. How insurance companies can arbitrarily change treatments or medications and how it harms patients. Here's her response to this question. Have you also found that you often have to argue with insurance companies to get the treatments you want for patients? Often. Uh, Joe, I I have a patient, very, very bad asthma, Uh, was on prednisone because of it. And prednisone long-term has a ton of devastating side effects, weight gain, diabetes, just a ton of horrible things can happen. We finally found an inhaler that worked for her. Her insurance paid for it. She was doing great, not coming to the office in the ER every month, every other month for a bad asthma attack. She has the same insurance, but from year to year, they can change what they decide to cover. She hasn't switched jobs. She hasn't switched insurance plans. It's just her insurance decided that they don't want to pay for that inhaler anymore. So you guess what? Now she's on another inhaler that doesn't work as well. She can't breathe good. She's in my office. She's on steroids, which have dozens of side effects. Going to the ER, all for a problem that we solved with certain medication that she was on. All of a sudden, the insurance company decides we're not going to pay for that medication anymore. I spent an hour on the phone with that company trying to find out what's going on. How can we get this covered? You know, why did they deny it? After an hour, at the end of an hour, going through different people, trying to find out how can I get my patient the medication they need, at the end of the day, they say, oh, it's out of our hands. It's not our fault. Her employer decided not to pay for this medication. I think this problem is one of many good reasons why we need Medicare for All. Another good reason for Medicare for All is that it would help protect cities, states, and the nation from diseases. Dr. Dooley's interview was published back in November 2019, before the COVID-19 pandemic. Listen how prescient Dr. Dooley sounds in the next segment when it comes to COVID-19. So when people are uninsured or underinsured, with the Affordable Care Act, it insured more people, but it did nothing to address this epidemic of being underinsured with these rising costs. So when people are underinsured, they, they ration care. They avoid going to the doctor when they're sick. And when people are sick uh, with communicable illnesses, it affects the whole community. Um, in Michigan, we are a state that has a high prevalence of hepatitis A. It was at epidemic levels. Um, we're slowly uh, getting the levels down by vaccinating people. But think about it. Um, hepatitis A is transmitted maybe through direct person-to-person contact or through food and beverages. So if you're sick and you work in the um, restaurant or food care industry, you don't make a lot of money because we don't have a, a livable living wage in, in this country, and you're a little bit sick, uh, and you can't afford to go to the doctor. You can't afford to go to the doctor. You don't make enough money as it is to get by. You certainly don't make enough money to take a day off, to go to the doctor, to pay your copay, your deductible or whatever. So you might go to work sick and you might have hepatitis A that day. And then you spread it to everybody who comes in contact with you. So when people are underinsured and they can't get the care that they need when they're sick, when it's something that we're talking about, like hepatitis A, which, it, you know, you could spread it throughout the whole community and devastate the whole community. Whereas if we had a nationwide um, healthcare system, if we had a livable 
uh, minimum wage, when people felt like they were sick, that there was no financial obstacle to getting diagnosed and treated, um, then we could limit the amount of people who go to work sick um, and get other people sick. In my final clip, Wendell Potter describes how Medicare for All will provide peace of mind. Mr. Potter previously worked as a public relations executive for two of the country's largest health insurers, Humana and Cigna. And since leaving Cigna in 2008 due to a crisis of conscience, Mr. Potter has become a leading advocate of health care reform and a critic of the health insurance industry. Here is Mr. Potter on peace of mind and Medicare for all. You need to remind people, too, and tell them stories about people who are enrolled in Medicare, appreciate and love that program. You'll find satisfaction with Medicare far higher than people who are privately insured. They don't have the worry that if they lose a job, that their coverage will go away. They have more peace of mind. And I think using terms like that, peace of mind, is very important as well, too. People, once they reach Medicare eligibility, and I've heard so many people over the years who've told me that they were just counting the days, counting the months, the years, in some cases the days, if they were getting closer to eligibility, of being able to no longer have to worry about making sure that they were working for an employer who had insurance and weren't worried about being laid off and then losing their insurance. So there's a lot of peace of mind that comes with this as well that I think we need to stress. I know that I could use more peace of mind when it comes to health care. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to Medicare for All Explained. Remember to tell your family, friends, and colleagues about this podcast. Information about Medicare for All Explained can be found at our website, MedicareForAllExplained.org. The music for this show is Super Bubbly by Jesse Spillane. The logo was created by Lily Sparks. Thank you for listening.